0: We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, in just a minute, I'll start right there. But in case you missed it last week, uh, we started talking about the attributes of God. Um, Last week, I talked about God's holiness and talked about what that looked like. I talked out of Isaiah chapter 6, when we had Isaiah, when he was taken up and he had this upward look, he saw who I believe was Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, we saw the worship of Jesus with the angels, them proclaiming that he is holy, 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 that he is the Lord of hosts. They said the whole earth is full of his glory. We saw the terrifying nature of the Holy One. Then we saw Isaiah, after he saw all these things, he had this inward look at himself and he realized the separation that was between him and God. But it didn't end there. We saw within that, that temple, within that throne room, there was an altar and that altar was for man. And I briefly said at that point that, that that throne, or that altar, excuse me, was a representation of God's mercy and grace. That's actually what we're going to talk about tonight in more depth. Then I talked about Isaiah's outward look, how after he answered God's call on, on going out and speaking to his fellow brothers and sisters in Israel, and Judah specifically, knowing full well they weren't going to listen, but he was so moved by God's holiness that he was willing to do whatever He had to. He was so moved by God's, we could say, mercy and grace on his own life. He's willing to do whatever God called him to. And that's where we jump into tonight. So if you're in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 2, let's go ahead and start in verse number 1. And it says this, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So I'm going to briefly go through this section just to kind of paint the picture of where we were in condition or in relation to God. Remember I talked about holiness, it's being set apart. We were separated from God. So let's talk about that separation, our desperate condition. First of all, it talks about that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it talks about the way or that we followed the way of the world. It says that we followed the way of the devil and the demons. And it says we ultimately followed our own sinful desires. We hear about that multiple times in Scripture where it talks about uh, loving or the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were following all three. We, you could say we were controlled by all three of those things before Christ rescued us. And ultimately, it says in that last verse, we were children of wrath. We deserved God's wrath. Going back to Isaiah's example, when he saw God's holiness and then he looked at himself, his first response is, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And that's, that should be our response to his holiness, realizing our separate separateness from him, but we're talking about God's mercy and grace today. But we don't understand God's mercy and grace if we don't understand God's holiness. So if you have not listened to last week's message, I encourage you to go back and do that at some point, point. I'm sure it will be a great help to you to be able to understand even what we're talking more about today. Um, But in the meantime, let's jump right into the next few verses. We're going to talk about his mercy and grace, and it says in verse number four, "...but God who is rich in mercy..." I love that first two words. We hear about how we're dead. We hear about how we really, when we're looking at God and his separateness from us, how we have no hope at that point. We see God's wrath. But then it says, But God, who is rich in his mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's kind of interesting, that presentation you just did, it had those two verses up there. Um, how appropriate. God knows the timing of everything, does he not? Kind of going back to that whole example of Isaiah. He sits on the throne. Even when we feel like things are out of control in our families, in our churches, in our community, in our country, God's still in control. But I love that. He is rich in his mercy. What's that, what's that make you think of? When I think of somebody rich, it's somebody who has everything they could possibly want. They, they are overabounding in wealth. In God's richness and his mercy, he is overabounding in his mercy. Like I said last week, he is holy. And that also helps to explain every other attribute that he has. It explains his love. It explains his justice. It explains his wrath. It explains his mercy. His mercy is so set apart from us. It explains his grace. And it ultimately says in this passage, his mercy, it overflows from his great love. Because he loves us, he shows us his mercy. Just like he showed Isaiah that mercy when Isaiah thought he was going to be torn apart. In his mercy, ultimately, it pardons us of all our sin. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says this, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We understand what it means when a person is pardoned. Uh, We've seen presidents pardon people who were guilty and found guilty of breaking the law and presidents pardon them. We've seen judges pardon people, but this is not like an earthly pardon. I love what it says right there. He cast all our sins into the depths of the sea you see he doesn't just pardon one sin, he wipes it all away when we come to jesus he pardons our past sins he pardons the sins right here in the present he pardons the future sins that we're going to commit that is the mercy of god it is rich it is overflowing it never runs out by the way you can never outrun god's mercy isn't that a great promise Matthew 9, 12 through 13 says, but when Jesus heard that, this is talking about when Jesus was eating with publicans and sinners, and you have the Pharisees, they're sitting there murmuring, complaining, because why is he sitting with publicans and sinners? And it says, but when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the the Pharisees thought they were righteous. And they thought their sacrifices, their works could make them righteous. But Jesus is saying right here, nothing you can do can make you righteous. All people are sick. You think you're you're healthy. But all people are sick and are basically on their deathbed waiting for God's judgment apart from his mercy and grace. And he's saying, I will have mercy. This is a gift. It's not anything we can earn. It's not anything we deserve, but he does show mercy. He delights in it. He loves to give us mercy. We can't approach unto God in our sinfulness. Isaiah realized that when he was standing in the presence of God, even though we would consider him a godly man, we can't approach to God in our sinfulness. But here's the the thing. He comes to us. Seeking us as lost sheep ultimately to bring us into his fold. Jesus came down to earth to seek and to save all those who are lost. And I love if you go back to the Old Testament, there's a great picture of his mercy. If you ever study Old Testament history, I encourage you to do so. It really helps you to understand all of scripture. Um, But if you study the tabernacle and the temple, on the Ark of the Covenant, what was on the very top of that? The mercy seat. Um, I love, Pastor Sweat, when you've talked about going over to Israel, when you went over there and they had a replica of the Ark of the Covenant that the mercy seat was missing. I do want to go to Israel at some point. That would be amazing. Um, But that important detail is so important for us because if you go back and look at it um, in Exodus in 25 through 17 through 22, it talks about the cherubims, they're overcovering, or their wings are overcovering the mercy seat. Their two wings are facing towards each other. They're facing the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, it's on top of the ark. But here's the important thing. What's underneath the mercy seat? God's law. Talks about his testimonies underneath. Aren't you glad that God's mercy covers the law for us? Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 11 and 12, says, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All those pictures that we see in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the uh, temple, those are all pictures of things to come. Just like Isaiah was seeing when he was in the actual temple of God, in his throne room, and seeing the angels facing each other, covering their eyes, and facing the throne, ultimately saying, holy, holy, holy. And he received mercy, just like we see the mercy seat pictured on the ark. Hebrews 9.27 says this, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time and I love this, without sin unto salvation. That's God's mercy. It clears us of all our sin if we ask him of his mercy. He's willing to give it, but we must seek it. We must accept his gift of mercy. So he is, number one, he's rich in mercy. Number two, he is rich in grace. We see that also mentioned in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Grace, basically what this means, it's getting what I do not deserve. So if you could compare the two, mercy is not getting what I do deserve. That's God's judgment and wrath. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. We could often compare this to um, the verse that talks about God, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from God. These are things we don't deserve. We don't deserve his grace. His grace is a gift And ultimately, it leaves me humbled. It says in verse number eight of Ephesians 2, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When I get this gift, it's not anything I've done to earn it. So when I get this gift, just like Isaiah got this gift, it left him completely humbled, and he said, here am I, Lord, send me. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I will do we should have that same response to his grace and his mercy. And we're going to talk later about what our response to these things, to his grace and mercy should be, and we're quickly getting to that. So God does more than just pardon us. That's mercy. His grace, it ultimately gives me life. You've heard this said before. Um, So once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because of his mercy and grace, we have been free from the very penalty of sin. But it doesn't stop there. We've been free from the power of sin. You're now dead to sin as it says in Romans chapter 6. We are not completely controlled like it says before by the world, the flesh and devil. Now we have the ability to actually live for Christ. So we're free from the presence of sin, or free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, and one day we will eventually be free from the presence of sin. And during this life, yeah, it can be very, very hard to live this life, especially nowadays. But his grace, like I said, is rich. It's rich, it's overflowing, it's overabundant. I cannot even measure his grace. His grace is sufficient for me to be able to live the life that I need to. One author said this, I forget who it was, but I've heard this many times, um, that his grace is, is supernatural enablement. It's supernatural enablement to be able to live for God when I could not live for God in my own strength. So His grace gives me power. 2 Corinthians twelve nine, And He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, talking to Paul, for my strength is made perfect in we- weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hebrews four fourteen says this, Seeing that we have a high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's what we need to do. Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace, just like Isaiah did, that we may obtain mercy because we need that pardon, and that we may find grace to help in time of need. In other words, Grace to live the life that God has called us to live right now, because he's not done with us. Some of you may think, you you don't know what I've done, Pastor Mike. You don't know, yeah, I accepted Christ, but then I turned on him, and I, I rejected him, and I walked away from him. You don't know. What about his mercy? How vast is his mercy? Endless. What about his grace? Is his grace more powerful than your sin? Yeah, absolutely. There is no end to his grace. So that's why it's so essential for us to get our eyes off of what we can't do, because we can't do anything, and get our eyes onto God who can do everything, even through the most broken of people. Because if we're all honest like Isaiah was, we're all broken people. And then it says his calling on us in verse number 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ, here's this, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're, work, we're his workmanship, we're created for good works. This is showing us our purpose in life. So now that we've been saved, now we've accepted Christ as our Savior, how do we do that? Well, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved, not of works, it's because of his mercy, because of his grace. It's trusting in him completely and not trusting in myself. But we are his workmanship, and now that we're saved, we're created to good works. Well, what's that look like? Second Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, all things are passed away. behold, all things are become new." Philippians 2:13, "For it is God which worketh in you both to will, that's to want to do and to do of his good pleasure." But what are the works that God has called us to, the good works that he's called us to because of his mercy and grace? And this is where we get into our response to him. So living by, we first talked about God's mercy and grace. Now we're going to talk about living by God's mercy and grace. If I had you raise your hands in here and asked how many of you love school, actually, let's go and do it. How many of you love school? Wow, that's way more than I thought you would. All right, so to me, school was a necessary evil. Um, it was a means to an end. So I did not love school. Um, you, you, you laugh, you, if you know my history, you know my past. When I originally graduated from Bob Jones with a degree in biology, do you remember what I was gonna become or thinking about becoming? A doctor. All right. Of all the professions to pick when you hate school, I don't know why I picked that. Thankfully, God is rich in grace and mercy and pulled me from that profession so I could do this. Oh, man. Another eight years of that. Um, but we're called to, to, onto good works because we are his workmanship. We are created on the good works. And what does his mercy ultimately teach me? Well, I have a few verses. You can see them on the screen. But it says this in Matthew 5:7: blessed are the merciful... For they shall obtain mercy. Merciful is, is talking about a characteristic that is part of us. God is characterized by mercy; He is merciful. We also, as His children, are to be merciful. Luke six thirty six: Be ye therefore merciful. This is a command, even as your Father also is merciful. And there's the corresponding verse in Matthew five forty eight, but He says it a little bit differently. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is heaven, is perfect. That word, perfect, that means complete. Did you know that showing mercy and being merciful actually makes us more complete? In other words, it makes us more like our Heavenly Father. We often so we so easily forget mercy. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Because it says in, in Micah 6.8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Why does God tell us to do justice and to love mercy? Why not love justice and do mercy? You ever thought about that? Um, What's our natural bent? Which one comes to us naturally, justice or mercy? Oh, justice. If you asked any one of us in here, we, we, we always want justice for somebody else. And we show very little mercy. When it comes to us, what do we want? We want mercy. We don't want justice. We don't want to pay, pay for the wrongs that we've committed. Uh, it's our natural bent. And I, I believe God knows that and is trying to bring it back in perspective and bring us back in balance to where we're supposed to be. So let me ask you a few questions. Um, siblings, how merciful are you with each other? Ooh. All right, I have kids. I'm not going to rat out on them and what to do or what happens. Um, So I'll I'll speak from my own experience. Um, I grew up with an older brother and older sister. One was seven years older. That was my brother. One was five years older. And they're probably listening on live stream right now. So great thing they can't stop me from talking. Uh, I used to get shut up all the time, but now they can't stop me. Um, (laughs) But that said, growing up, we would, always, we would always fight, not all the time. Sometimes we loved each other, very, very rarely, but sometimes. But you can always tell when your kids are fighting, right? Because what do you start hearing? Ugh. Mommy. And then you hear them. As they come running to you, what are they doing? They're coming to do what? She hit me in the face. Well, why did she hit you in the face? I might have shot her with my Nerf nerf gun. (laughs) And then the truth comes out. See, at that point, that child, they want justice, but they don't want justice for themselves when they're the ones to instigate it. All right, here's another question. Uh, Parents, how merciful are you with your kids? Ooh. What about when you step on a Lego? (laughs) My mercy goes out the window when I step on a Lego. I don't know why that little thing with those four little points on top can cause so much pain in my foot, but it always does. And they always are buried right right where you don't see it. Um, The worst part is when you step on one Lego and jump off of it onto (laughs) another Lego. Um, Here's another one. Kids, how merciful are you with your parents? So you always think our parents should be merciful to us, but how merciful are you with your parents when they messed up? By the way, if you haven't realized it yet, your parents are not perfect. Uh, there's, there's a lot of imperfectness there, if that's even a word. Um, a lot of times we, we as, uh, when I was a child or when we were children, we can sit there and say, I'm never going to be like my parents. It's coming to you one day. One day you will see. Um, Here's another one. Spouses, how merciful are you with each other? You always, you never. Remember when you fill in the blank. (sighs) What day is coming up? Valentine's Day. Day. All right, I'm trying to help you out again. Okay, this is two (laughs) weeks of trying to help you out. Man, never use the words always and never You are about to be crushed if you do. Don't do it, okay? Um, Be merciful. That means sometimes you have to overlook when you are wronged. That means you have to pardon people even when they don't deserve it. Um, Here's another one, another uh, relation we have. How merciful are you with your coworkers? Trust me, I get it. I struggle being merciful with mine. (laughs) actually the other way around, more likely. (laughs) All right, so how merciful, and now we're really getting home, how merciful are you with your Christian family? Okay, because brothers and sisters who are blood-related can sit there and argue all day long, and I'm best friends with my brother and sister. But Christian brothers and sisters, when they get on each other's nerves, whoo, that sometimes lasts a whole lot longer, does it not? Yeah, it's even harder sometimes to be merciful with those within the church. There's so many reasons why God talks about unity. There's so many reasons he talks about showing mercy. So as I walk humbly with God and realize his great mercy in my life, it causes me to be more merciful and it causes me to be more forgiving of others. You see, I must, I must be in his presence to truly understand his mercy. But if I don't understand his mercy, it's going to show in the way I react to other people. But I must, like it says, I must walk humbly with God because God resists the proud, but he does give grace to the humble. And he does show us great things about himself if we are humble and ready to receive it. He knows when we are proud. So I am still, according to that verse, am I still supposed to to be just in my life? Of course, nobody wants an unjust judge, and the same thing, we're supposed to do justice uh, because God is just, but it must be moderated or controlled by my mercy. Because we don't do justice perfectly, and God knows that. We go overboard, we love mercy, but God calls us to do justice than to love mercy. God wants us to have the right balance in our lives. So that's his mercy. Let me give you an example of going the other way with mercy and justice. Jonah 4.2. Hmm. Remember he was sent to the Ninevites, a very wicked people who were mortal enemies of Israel. And remember how he kept running from God, not wanting to go and actually preach the gospel, preach the uh, message of salvation to them. And then he finally goes very reluctantly after he gets spit up on land and goes over there. Um, and <laughs> it's funny as you read through that, um, you can almost picture his tone as he's telling them about their need to repent. It's not filled with mercy. He's doing it because he's he's basically got his arm bent behind his back. He's doing it because he feels like he's forced. And then, what does God do? Well, the city starts; the people start repenting. They start turning to God. What an amazing thing. These wicked people, they're turning to God. And Jonah 4.2, true to self, he says, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. He was complaining because God showed them mercy and grace. By the way, the same mercy and grace that He had showed to Jonah, he received a lot of mercy and grace. God could completely wipe him out, especially when he ran from Him. But God is merciful and gracious. So that's what his mercy teaches me. Now let's go to what his grace teaches me. If you would, turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. This is going to be my last point. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse number 11. This is talking about what his grace teaches me. And it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, righteously and godly in this present world. And I'll stop right there, I'll read the last two verses later. So before I get into this, to give full credit, uh, a couple of weeks ago I did listen to a message about this passage from Aaron Coffey. So if anything I, I say, rep, if anything sounds similar and I, do, I will be sharing some similar ideas tonight, that's why. So I wanna give full credit before I get into this. Uh, but that said, to give you a little bit of background, Titus, he was a pastor left in Crete by Paul. He was there left to organize the church. And if you know anything about the Cretans, their name literally means lying. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I would not want my name to represent a liar. But that's the kind of people he was dealing with. They were a wicked people, and he was dealing with the church there. But did you catch the first part of verse number 11? The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. In verse number 12, Teaching us. Oh, there we go, talking about school again. (laughs) Jumping right back into it. So I looked up that word, and I heard this from Aaron Coffey's message, um, but I looked it up, and I saw the same thing. Do you know what teaches means? It means to instruct, to train. Catch this. To correct, to chasten. I never really thought of grace like that. So you're telling me that grace, when you see that word teaches and you look it up all over the Bible, that word can mean these things, to instruct, to train, to correct, to chasten? You tell me that God's discipline in my life is actually his grace? I don't often think of grace as correcting and chastening. However, this is really, it's a gift of God that we don't deserve. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about his chastening and he chastens us because we're his dear children, because he loves us. It's, it's a gift from God. We should look at that and say, what a great thing. Now, let's bring this back to reality for us. Children, do you, uh, when you get chastened by your parents or disciplined, are you like, thank you, mom and dad. Thank you for your grace in my life. Absolutely not. All right. When I got my backside lit up as a kid, which was many a time, um, I did not sit there and say, Mother, thank you for your grace. <laughs> By the way, Mom, if you're watching this, I apologize. She, uh, she hates it when I called her mother growing up. <laughs> okay, I thought, always thought it was so proper to call her like that, but she did not like it. Um, but back to this point. We don't think of that. We don't think of that as grace in our lives. But I'm going to talk to you tonight because it's going to show us and change, hopefully, the way even we as parents, we discipline or use discipline in our kids' lives because it really does need to match with the way God uses discipline in his grace in our lives. You see, grace, when I talked about it earlier, you have mercy that's pardoning us from our iniquity. It's completely cleansing us of our sin. But it doesn't stop right there. He gives us his grace. And that's grace ultimately, it says it quickens us. It makes us alive. And it makes us alive right now. It means that we can live for God right now. So another way you could say this is his grace enables me to live righteously in this world. That's what his grace does. Because before that, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I could not live righteously, but now he has made me new. I'm a new creation. And that means now I am alive unto righteousness and I can live righteously. Sin does have no more hold over me. So if we look at it that way, grace is enabling me from God unto righteousness. But oftentimes we apply it the opposite way. Grace is misapplied to enable others to sin. Romans 6:15 What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace God forbid You see oftentimes just as Paul said in Romans grace is misapplied to allow for sin to do sin and it's oftentimes misapplied within Christian circles and in Christian families to allow for sin and to do sin But God's grace has called me to live unto righteousness. It teaches me these things. Shouldn't the way I discipline my children reflect that? Let me ask this question. Does disciplining and anger enable my kids to righteousness? Absolutely not. Um, One of the best things I've ever heard when it comes to disciplining your child, send them to their room and give a few minutes. Why? Why? Let them think and also to give you time to make sure you are in the right spirit when you go in there because if you go in there in the wrong moment, trust me, I've been there, I've done that, it, it doesn't end well. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Does, forget, does foregoing discipline altogether enable my kids unto righteousness, yes or no? Absolutely not. You see, God disciplines us to enable us to righteousness. We should be doing the same thing in our homes. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. shame. Hebrews 12, 11, New Testament. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So that said, we should be giving our kids every opportunity to be enabled unto righteousness. But now, the caveat is, it's still their choice on how they respond. That's why it says right there in Hebrews 12, 11, unto them which are exercised thereby. They allow that grace, you could say, to work in their life unto righteousness. And hopefully that lesson, and hopefully afterwards you administer the discipline, you sit down and talk with your child and you talk through, through with them about God's word and God's attributes and who God is and why we do the things we do. Hopefully you sit down and talk with them and pray with them. Um, it gives greater opportunity for them to be exercised by that discipline, by that grace in their life. So his grace, it teaches me, it instructs me, it trains me, it corrects me, it chastens me. All four of those things, those are all tools and things that his grace does. And what does it teach me? What does it instruct me? How does it discipline me? And it says right there in verse number 12, to deny ungodliness. Now I'll stop right there. Originally, when I heard the word ungodliness growing up, I always thought, man, ungodly, it's, it's those people over there, the, the wicked people of the world. Ungodly. Who is he writing to right here? He's writing to Titus, and he's writing about being a pastor to who? The church in Crete. So ultimately, he's going to be teaching these Christians on making sure that that they are denying ungodliness. In other words, this is a problem that even Christians face. So what does ungodliness mean? We often think Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we see the whole progression through that, how that people turned away from God and he turned them over. He allowed them to to basically give in to their own immorality. But I love what uh, Jerry Bridges says in, um, forget the name of the book I have it written down. Um, Respectable Sins. If you ever read that book, I'd encourage you to do that. But he says, ungodliness, it basically means living your everyday life with little or no thought of God. Have you ever gone throughout a day as a Christian and not really thought about God? I've had a few days like that. That's ungodliness. That's what the grace of God teaches me not to do. But so often I do it. What would that look like as we go throughout the day without even thinking about God? We wake up, turn our alarm off, check our phone, go into the bathroom, brush our teeth, get ready, get dressed, go out the door, drive to work, honk at a few people on the way to work. Um, We get into the office, we do our work, then we break for lunch, play on our phones a little bit more, get off our phone, go back to work, Drive home, honk a few more people on the way home. We honk at people a lot, don't we? Um, And then we get home, we walk in, the house is a disaster because the kids were out of control, and you throw your hands up and like, I'm just going to sit down and have some me time. Who are we thinking about at that moment? Me. How would that day have looked differently if I had started my morning in prayer and devotion and studying God's word. And you can fill in the blanks from there how that, would have, how that would have looked different. How would that day have looked different if after work on my drive home, if I had actually been praying and talking to God before I walked into the household and my wife, who is overwhelmed because the kids have been crazy all day, um, needs some help, And now I can actually come beside her and help her the way I'm supposed to. You see, not thinking about God means we're thinking about self. And that's a dangerous place to be. A person may be moral and upright. This is also from bridges or even busy in Christian service, yet have no little to no desire to draw close to God. This is a mark of ungodliness. So that's ungodliness. What's the next one? The grace of God, it teaches us to deny worldly lust And stay with me, I'm almost done. Lust, this means desire, craving, or longing. So if we look at this whole description right here, this is talking about worldly lust. All right, if we're desiring and craving God and longing for him, that's a good thing. But if we're desiring and craving things of the world, that's not a good thing. So let me ask you this. Um, what are worldly lusts? Oftentimes we can, we can name all these things that are, are just terrible and obviously against Scripture, obviously violates God's law, but it's actually much more simple. You know what worldly lust is? It's loving something or someone more than I love God. And that could be even good things in life. All right? I love football. I love college football. I love Michigan football. Go blue. Um, and I'll just stop right there. I would say I love the Lions, but they always disappoint me every every year. Um, growing up, I used to love hockey. I used to watch the Red Wings all the time. Back in the glory days when we'd always beat the Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, Pastor Todd's an Avalanche fan. Um, and I love that. I, I mean, I could even tell you the 97 team, I could, if you came to me today, I could give you 50% of the roster. Like, I loved it. But if I'm not careful, I can love it more than I love God. As a child, yeah, I did. Even as an adult, I still struggle with that. Let's ask a few other questions. What are other things you can love? Uh, A few years ago, we we got our first house, and that, oh boy, that was a fixer upper (laughs) Oh, They had like three dogs, and you could definitely tell they didn't clean up after their dogs. I'm not a dog person, um, and that's part of it. Sorry for you people who are dog people. But that said, uh, it smelled terrible and we had to rip out all the carpet and put down LVP on the floors and everything and I got really into it and it was easy to get lost. and become so focused on that that I began to love home re- renovations over God. So even something like that, that could be a worldly lust. Uh, you could fill in the blank for your own life. What is it that you love more than you love God? Well, let me ask you this question. What makes you angry when it's taken away? That will help us to know what we love more than we love God. I mean, it could even be something as basic as knitting. Um, I'm not into knitting. I don't know if you realize that looking at me, but that's not me. Some people are. Um, But it's anything that we desire more than we desire of God. It's anything that we love more than we love God. So the grace of God, it teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust. And it teaches us to do these things. So it's always turning us away from one thing and turning us to another. And these are the three things. To live soberly, with sound mind. To live righteously, doing what is right according to not my standard, but God's standard. And then the last one, to live godly. That means living with God in mind. 1 Corinthians 10.31, let's say it together. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think God intended it for us to remind us that we need to consider God in all that we do, even the most basic things in life. And ultimately, the last two verses, 13 and 14, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. His grace motivates me to keep my eyes on him because I can't obtain that grace anywhere else. It should be so wonderful, so awe invoking to my life that I cannot remove my eyes from him because of his grace and mercy. One day I will see him. It talks about Jesus returning. One day I will stand before him. I will not be standing before the great white throne judgment if I'm a Christian, but I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will judge my works on whether they will last for eternity or go for eternity. By the way, and I love what Aaron Coff said in this, what two things in life can you take with you? What two things are going to go into eternity? God's word. His word will never go away. It shall never pass away. What's the other thing? Salvation, Salvation, yep. People. People will go into eternity. There will be a place where people go. Everything else we have in this life, everything we desire, it's not going with us. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. So not only did he redeem us, liberate us, but he also set us apart for good works. Keep this in mind. The price of our liberation was his life this one isaiah saw sitting on the throne high and lifted up he's the one that came down and gave his life for you and me because he loves us and from his love flows his mercy in his grace so because of that we should be in complete awe of his saving grace and his mercy it ultimately cost him his life therefore we must submit to whatever he has called us to. It should enthrall us because his mercy is so great in my life and his grace is so rich. Let's pray. Father, as we leave this place, help us to keep our eyes on you and not on things of this world. This world will ultimately burn up and we will lose everything in this world except for your word and the people that ultimately go into eternity. Give us grace to be able to do what we need to do. You say you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We need your supernatural enablement to be able to live the life that you have called us to. Help us to love mercy and still do justice, but to ultimately pardon people and forgive people the way that we would want to be forgiven and pardoned in the way that you have pardoned and forgiven me. Father, we need you every day and every hour. Help us to retain you in our thoughts and all that we do and say. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.